What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Alex Svanik. Alex is the founder of Nansen, which is a blockchain analytics platform that allows users to have deep insights into on-chain data. We go through Alex's impressive background and the reason he started Nansen. It is super interesting to hear Alex's entrepreneurial journey from ideation to execution. What was also surprising is how important on-chain data really is, a fact that dawns on me during our conversation. There is an incredible amount of insight and analysis that can be performed on on on-chain data in order to generate outsized returns something I know all of you are deeply interested in. While speaking with Alex, you can tell that Nonsense is going to be a monster, especially because they recently announced that they raised a huge $75 million round and are quickly approaching unicorn status. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex. Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's nice to be here. Uh, My background is in artificial intelligence, and actually a few years of management consulting from 2011 to 2014. Um, but yeah, my background is artificial intelligence, machine learning. I uh, started my own, my first company in 2010, an AI consultancy, probably a bit too early, to be honest. Um, and then I worked as a data science manager for four years uh, at a European media group uh, in Barcelona and Oslo. Also had um, some team members in, in London. And then in 2017, I learned about Ethereum uh, and pretty much resigned from my job to start working full-time in the crypto space and moved to Hong Kong to build up a data team there for a startup. That startup didn't work out, um, but it it sort of led me to many interesting people and companies in the space. And I was definitely certain I wanted to continue working in the crypto space. And so I did some work with Xerox, which is a decentralized exchange protocol in 2019. And end of 2019, ended up founding uh, Nansen together with Lars and Yevgeny, my two co-founders, which I'm, of course, happy to talk about as well. That's amazing. Okay, so take me back when you were learning about AI, like what was the initial spark where you're like, okay, this is something that's really interesting. I want to study this. I want this to be kind of my, my main area of focus. Like, was that all the way back in college or when was that? Yeah, I, I love that question. Actually, uh, I was in high school when I decided to, you know, study cognitive science, which was was actually my, my bachelor's degree. And then I did a master's in AI later. Um, the reason I started with cognitive science was because, first of all, I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, after high school. Uh, but secondly, it was a very multidisciplinary program and one of the things they talked about in the description of this program was AI and I think um, you know having played video games and so on since I was a a kid I was always fascinated by how you could program your enemies and so on to act in certain ways Uh, so that that was kind of like sort of a deep fascination with AI and actually if I go back to to my childhood I can actually find drawings of robots uh, from when I was a kid because I wanted to be, become an inventor when I, be, <laughs> when I got older. So I think I always had like a deep fascination for AI. 
Um, but yeah, I started uh, this cognitive science bachelor's degree, specialized in computer science within that program, and then went on to do a master's in AI at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I, I think also, you know, it's not just a childhood fascination, but I also realized that, hey, this is something that is philosophically quite interesting, but also could lead you to having a good career, because I really believe that uh, that AI and data was was the future, right? And then. When I started my master's degree, I remember The Economist publishing, I think, one of their iconic um, um, sort of front pages, which I, I think it was called The Data Deluge or something like that, where they effectively said that, you know, the data scientist is going to become like the sexiest job of the 21st century or something like that. So I, it made me feel like I was on the right path career-wise as well. That's awesome. Okay, so if you had to kind of describe, and this is like a total noob question, but if you had to describe AI to those like myself who have literally no exposure to it. Like, is a fair way to say it like data science with learning? Is that like a fair sum up? Yeah, I guess that's that's machine learning um, to some extent. And, and to be to be honest, like most AI stuff that happens today is through machine learning. So, you know, at a high level, you're trying to create, you know, artificial systems that can actually think or act rationally and and respond to the environment in intelligent ways. So there are many different ways you can define AI without getting too deep into it. But I think certainly one of the things that happened um, in the last 20 years is that, actually maybe you could say even 10 years, but let's say 20 years, is that machine learning became kind of the core of artificial intelligence. For a long time, people try to sort of program machines to be intelligent, sort of hard code them, but then that doesn't really scale very well. Um, and so you need to have these learning mechanisms and learning algorithms to make sure that you can actually get art artificial intelligence systems. But yeah, I think like data science as well as like another term which is used to describe, you know, machine learning often, but also data analysis. So um, yeah, so all these things kind of overlap with each other. And, you know, you can probably spend a whole podcast just talking about the definitions of each of them. Very cool. Okay. So Take me all the way back to 2017 when you learned about Ethereum. Like, what was your initial entryway into Ethereum? And what was that spark that made you realize, okay, wow, this is incredible? So I think I, I actually didn't find Bitcoin very interesting, to be honest, when I learned about it in like 2013. You know, I knew people had made a lot of money on it. And I had the same sort of boomer takes on it that it's only going to be used by criminals and what's the point, etc. Probably that ignorant take came from the fact that I'm from Norway, not, be not because Norwegians are ignorant, but because we have we have a pretty well-functioning financial system in Norway, right? So you don't really see the need for something like Bitcoin. Um, so I kind of ignored Bitcoin for, let's say, four years, four or five years. Uh, didn't find it super interesting, um, unfortunately. Um, but then when Ethereum came around, I think there were two things that uh, I liked about it. The first thing was that one issue I had with Bitcoin was always like, are you betting on the, the right horse in this, in this game? So if you truly believe that blockchains are going to change the world, like how do you know that Bitcoin is the currency that's going to take off? Like how do you know someone's not just going to create a new currency with a better sort of monetary policy and you know, higher security, lower latency, whatever it is that's going to overtake it? That was always a doubt I had with Bitcoin. And then when I learned about Ethereum, I understood that this is a platform. So you can actually, like there's a good chance that 
whatever the contender to Bitcoin might be, it will actually be created on Ethereum. So that was the first thing where it felt like from an investor perspective, it's almost like a safer bet because you're making a platform bet instead of trying to bet on one specific application. So I think that was the first thing that attracted me uh, to Ethereum. And then the second thing was, you know, I started thinking about how Ethereum enables permissionless innovation, which I think is one, still one of the, the main benefits of blockchains, that you can just create something, uh, you, can, you can issue it on the blockchain, um, similar to how you would put an app on an app store, except no one, no individual or no individual corporation controls the app store. So I think even if you just look past sort of the financial applications and so on of Ethereum, that in itself is just incredible in terms of what it allows for uh, on the innovation side. So I think those were the two things that attracted me. Number one, it's a platform bet. Uh, and number two, it allows for permissionless innovation. Okay, so at what stage did you decide, okay, this is just too exciting, I can't stand it, I'm, I need to build something in this world? Yeah, so I, I, I do think that we have to be kind of open about how uh, crypto, on the one hand, is intellectually very stimulating. On the other hand, it also appeals to your greed to some extent. I mean, it's like there are, there are just so many opportunities within the crypto space. And I... I remember um, sitting at a restaurant in, in Barcelona where I was living at the time uh, with some of my colleagues actually and we were talking about this crypto space, I think it was the summer of 2017. And one of them said that he had talked to someone who said um, that they don't know a single Solidity developer who's not a millionaire. And so for context, Solidity is a programming language you would use to create uh, applications on Ethereum. And so I guess we reflected a, a bit on that and thought, well, the market is kind of screaming for us to, like someone who has a bit of technical know-how and so on, to join this space, right? There's a lot of demand for it. Uh, so I think it took me, it didn't take me many months to be quite uh, honest. I think maybe three months or so after I uh, acquired my first small amount of Ether um, before I decided that I should, you know, just take the plunge in, into the crypto space. And then uh, in practice, you know, leaving your job takes a bit more time. So probably like six, seven months or something uh, later, I had resigned. Uh, so, so, yeah. And then, you know, I had to, I got this offer to join the startup in Hong Kong. And, and so I packed up my bags and, and moved from, from Barcelona to Hong Kong to really go 100% into crypto. All right, so can you describe to me what you did at that startup? And then also, can you describe what, what did you do after that startup to then go found, uh, found Nanton? Yeah, so the startup, uh, I joined as like the first or technically second employee at the startup. It was a market intelligence startup. So the idea was to kind of aggregate as much information as you could on the crypto space and then uh, somehow offer that to users, um, the, the, the sort of, uh, catch being that there was a token which was created by uh, this company and, and created in an ICO, an initial coin offering. Uh, and, you know, we had to, number one, figure out how to build a really good market intelligence platform. And then number two, try to fit the token into it. And so to make a long story short, that uh, is actually pretty difficult, like to build a really good product and also try to make some kind of utility token uh, make sense in that setup. And so my job was to build out the data team 
which meant that I was hiring uh, data engineers, data scientists who um, could help us build up this market intelligence platform. We would effectively, you know, ingest data like news feeds, uh, market data, on-chain data, and then try to aggregate that into like dashboards and uh, products that we could um, roll out to the users of this of this product. It was called CoinFi, by the way. Um, and I think you know we were onto something good, but it was also <laughs> the funny thing is it was like 2018 when the price of Ether went from fourteen hundred dollars to like. $80 in a year, maybe like 10 months. And so uh, that created a lot of problems for this startup because number one, they didn't manage the treasury very well. And that meant that the $15 million they'd raised quickly became, you know, let's say two or $3 million. I'm not sure about the specifics. Uh, and they had hired a lot of people, they'd spent a lot of money. And, and one day they found out that, hey, we actually don't have money to continue, at least we don't have a long enough runway to keep everyone on board. So uh, they basically shut down the whole product department, including including my team and the guys that I had hired, uh, sadly. So this was like late 2018, basically got laid off like uh, at the bottom uh, of the bear market of 2018. So I had to figure out what to do next. Damn brutal. Okay. So, so you're, you know, you're out of the job. In the depths of the bear market, everyone's depressed, everyone's sad. So at that point, were you thinking like, you know what? We have a great team of people here. We're, we're, you know, we're going to build our own product because we're so confident in crypto and we know it's going to come back. Or what was that thought process like? Yeah, just to add to that, I was also living in Hong Kong, like the, the most expensive uh, housing market in the world. And I had like a two-year lease, which was, which was fun. Uh, but yeah, so so effectively, I mean, I didn't I didn't think, hey, I'm gonna go out and sort of bring all these these guys with me, and and do something uh, similar. But at the same time, um, Yevgeny, who is one of my co-founders now, he was one of the guys I had hired for my team, and so certainly there is kind of a legacy that goes back to that startup. Um, we also have. Two more people, uh, one research engineer and one data engineer, who were working at that startup as well, who decided to uh, come on board with with Nansen later on. So, so yeah, I mean, I think I I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder after that um, after that experience, and I and I always felt like I could do better in 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 the sense of like managing the company and the direction, um, and you know. I think hopefully I've proven that to some extent with Namsen now. Like we we do operate in the same space as that startup did, um, except we have more of a laser focus on on-chain data, which I think is the the really unique data asset uh, for for blockchains. And so we've decided to just get you know become the best in the world at that. Um, but yeah, so I mean many of the things I think I often say that like. The leaders and managers you learn the most from in your career are the ones that you <laughs> you dislike, or the ones that you know that you think um, aren't very good at their job. And it was the same. I, I, I you know, I mean, don't mean to throw people under the bus here, but like, uh, I do feel that was uh, an instance of that where I, you know, had a list of things that I would have done differently, and now running Nansen, I get the chance to actually do them differently. That's awesome. All right. So for those who are listening and don't know. Could you describe what is Nansen and why is it exciting? Yeah, so Nansen is a blockchain analytics platform for investors and traders in the crypto space. And we help our customers discover new opportunities, perform due diligence on those opportunities, and receive 
real-time notifications whenever important events take place on the blockchain. So um, recently, Nonsense has been used a lot by NFT collectors. Uh, so if you want to figure out what are, what are the hot NFT collections that you should be looking at, you can use the dashboards that we have. So it's kind of like, think of it as like a Bloomberg for digital assets. That's kind of one way to think about it, right? You open up your screen, you see a lot of information on the screen and uh, you can see what's hot in the last 24 hours. Uh, you can see like capital flow into certain smart contracts. You can see what the smart money is doing. So I think one of the unique things about, about Nansen, because I often get asked, you know, isn't all this information public, right? Like can't people just go out and look at the blockchain and see what's happening? And that is like partially true. Uh, there are, you know, at least three things you need to do in order to sort of um, actually surface the signal in, in all this data, which is what we, that's our mission at Nansen. The first thing is you obviously need to pull out the data from the nodes to make it more easily accessible through querying and so on. That's kind of the first problem. That's sort of, other people have solved that problem, so it's not necessarily super hard, but it does take time and effort and computing resources and so on. The second thing you need to do is to transform that data. So if you're thinking about like decentralized exchanges, pretty much all of these decentralized exchanges have their own formats for how they, you know, uh, sort of have trades. Like, what does the data look like for Uniswap versus Matcha or One Inch uh, or Zero X? Right. These are different protocols, different applications, and you need to standardize and harmonize it. So, you have to do that with lots of different things. Uh, so, it's the same with uh, liquidity provisioning or like lending protocols. You need to standardize and harmonize and parse out the information. That's the second problem. And the third problem, which we are uniquely the best at in the world, is to add the real-world contextual layer on top of this. So effectively associating addresses with entities in the real world. So how do you know which addresses belong to like Binance or Coinbase or Uniswap or even funds like Alameda, Three Arrows Capital, A16Z and so on. And so. That's actually where a lot of the magic happens because it, it allows you to aggregate the capital flows on entities and you can understand you know, how much money is actually flowing into exchanges right now, like how much money is being taken off of exchanges. And another thing we do in that category is that we, uh, we classify addresses as smart money. So instead of you having to look at 200 million different addresses on the blockchain, you can focus your attention to the maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 addresses that have a track record of trading successfully on the blockchain or that we know belong to certain funds, VCs and so on who have a good track record. And that means instead of just saying, hey, you know, here's how much money in total has been flowing into these smart contracts or NFT collections, you can see here's what the smart money is actually putting their funds into. And that allows you to understand, you know, we basically end up curating the capital flows and like curating the signals uh, directly from the blockchain, which, by the way, like is the most kind of real-time uh, uh, manner you can track what's happening in the crypto space. You can, of course, look at what people are saying on Twitter, but that's kind of you know talking the talk. If you want to see, you know, if people are walking the walk, you would you would have to look at the blockchain itself. So that's that's what we help them with. Amazing. Okay, we have a ton to dive into, but I want to go a little bit back to when you mentioned that 
you guys are really just focusing on the on-chain data. So I want to ask you, like, why is on-chain so important for, for for you guys? Like, why do you, why are you guys not looking at you know social metrics and all other kind of data sources? Like, why do you think on-chain is, is the best data source to to observe? I think part of it is just uh, intellectual curiosity. That was that was the the initial spark uh, for Yevgeny, for example, who created. So this is my co-founder, who who. Um, created Ethereum ETL, which is the most used open source library to pull out data from Ethereum to use for analytics. Uh, so, so certainly intellectual curiosity and sort of fascination for this unique data asset, which doesn't exist you know, in traditional finance, right? You can see real-time transactions happening uh, at the most granular level. Uh, and and as, so I think like that was maybe the impetus for starting for for Evgeny to start uh, Ethereum ETL. Then I think the other part is um, from from like a competitive perspective. Like I do see uh, some of the analytics products in the space try to almost replicate what is going on in traditional finance and do the same thing uh, in crypto. So for example, market data. Obviously, everyone needs that. News feeds. Everyone needs that. But these things aren't uniquely, uh, you know, they aren't unique to blockchains. And so that means you can sort of follow the playbook of existing companies. But the cool thing about on-chain data is you have to make the playbook yourself. You have to figure out what are the metrics that matter, right? Uh, what, what is the information that we should be surfacing to our users? So I think it's just like a, a more fun challenge uh, to tackle as well. And at the end of the day, you know, I think there's also more alpha in on-chain data than most other uh, data sources, including like centralized exchanges, news, and so on. And you know, we, we, we kind of have the track record of that. If you speak to some of our customers, there are some amazing stories of how people have been able to capitalize on this information. So I try to be very cautious, and, and I don't want to promise that people can use our product and then become millionaires overnight, right? That's, that's not the idea. But there are many examples of people who have been using our product and have discovered certain things on chain because there's also an incredible uh, sort of fragmentation of, of what happens in the crypto markets. Like it's, there are so many different projects or so many different addresses to look at that you can sort of discover these pockets if you spend enough time on this where you might be able to discover an opportunity and then and then trade on it or execute um, some transaction on it. So there, you know, I, I can give you one example. I was speaking to one of the top crypto funds uh, in the world, uh, actually at the very beginning of, of when we started making Nonsen. And they told me that you know, they had paid for the, I think you know, it's like $150 a month, the, the cheapest uh, plan or the cheapest tier of our product. They paid for the 150 bucks and then, you know, one or two weeks into using it, they discovered another fund accumulating the, the same token that they wanted to accumulate and were in the process of accumulating. So, you know, their conclusion was, hey, we need to accelerate. We need to be buying these tokens faster. And they estimated that they basically had saved something like $250,000 uh, in, ex in execution costs because of that information. And like they paid $150 to use the product, right? So obviously not everyone uh, can get those types of uh, returns on their subscription cost. 
but there are many examples of you know people picking up alpha using on-chain data and then and then capitalizing on it that's amazing awesome all right so i, I want to ask you about I, I know nonsense has like there's a ton of different features there's token god mode there's smart one e there's the wallet profiler like there's all these incredible things can you kind of take me through some of these like and uh, you know i'd love to start with token god mode i mean it's, it sounds so cool so so please tell me all, all about that yeah so um so that's actually the first uh, dashboard that became really popular in nelson and the idea is very simple you can plug in any token any ethereum token like an erc20 uh token so it could be um, you know, it could be synthetics or it could be maker or it could be sushi or uni or whatever you want. And you get this God mode view on uh, this token. So, you know, what are all the things you would want to know about a specific token before you put money into it? So you'd probably want to know, you know, who actually owns this token? What does the sort of cap table look like? Who are the owners today? You know, if you look at the top five holders, who are these? You know, are they funds? Are they other DeFi protocols where the tokens are locked up? Are they exchanges? And so on and so forth. So you get that information. You also get information on who has been accumulating the tokens in the last seven days, who has been selling them off. You get information on the liquidity of the token. So, for example, which exchanges have uh, the most tokens in their wallets? And this is a unique uh, and different thing than what you might find on something like CoinGecko or, or CoinMarketCap, where you see the volume of the different exchanges. The problem with that data is that it's self-reported by the exchanges, and we know there's a lot of wash trading going on on exchanges. What we show you is what assets can you find in their custody. So you know you can see how much unit tokens are sitting on Binance. You can see how much unit tokens are sitting on Coinbase. And that's much harder to, to fudge, right? Like it's harder to fake that data. Um, and so you get a better sense of what the real liquidity actually is. Doesn't mean that all those tokens are for sale, of course. You can have tokens deposited into Binance without them sitting on the order book. Um, but uh, it, it gives you a really good sense of liquidity. You also have information on like DEX trades. Um, you know, you see price volume charts that you would expect to see elsewhere, except we uh, create those directly from on-chain data. So that means we look at Uniswap, SushiSwap, Matcha, 0x, 1inch, like all these different uh, DEXs, and we aggregate the information to give you like an on-chain volume and price indicator, which again is pr less prone to wash trading. So it gives you a cleaner signal on the, on the trading, um, the, on, the, on the markets effectively. So that's like token god mode. The intention was like, to give people a sense of, you know, having this like, you know, uh, kind of omniscient, uh, all-seeing eye on the markets uh, for a specific token. So that's why we call it token god mode. And later on, we ended up <clears throat> deploying NFT god mode as well, which is kind of a similar concept, although it shows different information. Awesome. Okay, so tell me about the smart money feature. Is is that what you were mentioning before, where like different crypto funds, uh, their, their kind of wallets are, are tracked and you can kind of tell, oh, uh, Polychain is now acquiring this token or, or what is smart money? Yeah, so smart money appears in two ways in Nansen. The first is that we have a specific, you know, smart money dashboard, which focuses on the segment of smart money. So it will, it will show you things like 
what tokens have the smart money wallets been uh, accumulating in the last 24 hours? Which tokens have they been getting rid of? Uh, what are their individual transactions, like literally a feed of transactions that have been made by these smart money wallets? And that can actually be quite useful to see what new protocols they're interacting with, which yield farms they're putting funds into, which tokens they're using, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a feed there where you can literally see, hey, Alameda just approved usage of this token for a new uh, smart contract, right? And that's like literally the first time they're interacting with that smart contract. You can see that in that feed. So that's a smart money dashboard. But then more broadly, there's the smart money wallets, which actually appear in many different um, dashboards throughout Nansen and also in different features. So as I mentioned before, you can get real-time notifications when certain things happen. And so you could set up alerts where you get a Telegram, Discord or Slack notification whenever cert some certain trigger takes place. So. You know, you, you might want to get a notification every time Alameda puts $50 million into um, another address. And, you know, you can set that up in like 30 seconds uh, with Nansen, which means with, you know, every time that happens, you get a notification through any of those channels. So, yeah, those are the two ways. You have the dashboard, which focuses on smart money, but actually all our other dashboards too have sort of pockets of smart money alpha kind of baked into them where you can see... For example, in the NFT dashboards, you know, you can filter out and you can see all the NFT transactions made by smart money wallets instead of having to look at like all the transactions taking place for NFTs more broadly. And then you also have a, a wallet profiler, which I think that it's kind of like if if someone is like a whale, it'll like it'll kind of indicate that. And then if someone's like a, a DeFi trader, I think it'll, it'll indicate that as well. Um, could, could you describe the wallet profiler? Yeah, this is another unique thing that you can do with on-chain data because you can plug in a specific Ethereum wallet. It could also be a Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, Avalanche, Celo wallet, and so on. Um, but effectively, let's, let's focus on Ethereum for now. You can plug in an Ethereum address and you get to see things like what's their activity profile in like time of day and day of week, which can be helpful if you're trying to figure out like you know, who's, who's behind this address, right? That can help you uh, understand which time zone they're located in, for example, which, which can be useful in many different contexts uh, to know when they're awake, like when they're trading and so on. Uh, but you can also see relate, like related wallets. For example, have they deployed any contracts, right? Um, are they like um, maybe a smart contract developer that uh, has been creating tokens or smart, like uh, yield farming smart contracts and so on? You can see the basics, like um, uh, what's their token balances, but you can also see which other wallets they've been interacting with. And this can be quite useful to understand, um, you know, what this wallet is all about. So if you, if you go back to before Nansen launched, I think this kind of intelligence was mostly reserved for the on-chain analytics companies that focus on like government agencies, tax authorities, uh, AML purposes for exchanges and so on, but we kind of felt that this information should be available to all uh, crypto users and crypto investors, right? So it, it feels a bit like we've leveled the playing field a bit when it comes to understanding what different addresses are. And, you know, we feel that the man in the arena, like the person, man or woman in the arena, the person who's actually on the ground floor, like trading, investing, taking risks, they deserve 
the best on-chain analytics. And so we feel that Wallet Profiler is a way to kind of level the playing field versus some of these other an- analytics products that are mostly just built for like governments and, and large corporations. All right, Nansen has a ton of other really cool features. C- could you kind of take me through through a few of your favorites that we haven't touched upon yet? Yeah, like day to day, I mean, the last few months I've been using the NFT dashboards a lot, like many of our users have. So the NFT dashboards are really cool because um, they, they are just a bit, I think, conceptually easier to understand, just like NFTs are compared to DeFi. Like DeFi is very convoluted often and confusing. But NFTs, at the end of the day, I mean, at least these days, it's mostly JPEGs that people are trading, right? So you can you can really just intuitively understand um, uh, what what is going on with these JPEG assets by looking at NFT Paradise, which is the kind of overall market view of what's happening. Uh, we also have an NFT Blue Chip Index, which takes the 20 sort of highest quality NFT collections based on some some metrics that we have. And then it looks at how that market has evolved over time uh, and sort of the, the, the top gainers and top losers within that index. Um, you know, and then you can drill down to like NFT God mode for specific collections. You can look at the notable buyers that are scooping up NFTs in, in real time. There's like a mint master section which shows you which NFTs are being minted like in real time and the degree uh, of which these NFT collections are being scooped up very, very fast. So there's kind of like a FOMO level associated with them. So I think all the NFT stuff is actually really, really fun. And and many people love these features about Nansen. I do think there are some perhaps underappreciated dashboards in Nansen that uh, people might not be aware of. So we have, for example, some some due diligence tools or analysis tools that I think are really powerful. Like you can, you can um, use token movements to understand like how a specific token has been, like the balances and so on have changed in a specific time period. So if you're doing an investigation on like, hey, what was actually going on with the sushi tokens like January to February this year, you can plug in that time range and you can see like how the balances change, what were the top transactions that took place. And this can be really useful if you're trying to understand what is going on with a specific token project. Um, we also have like token overlap, which lets you plug in two different tokens and you can see the overlap in holders between these two assets. Um, we have like a sandwich attack dashboard, which maybe we've deprecated now, but we still have it available uh, for, for API customers uh, where, where you can actually see um, if addresses have been the victim of sandwich attacks, which are basically like front running attacks uh, on the blockchain. And for example, I checked my own wallet and I discovered I've lost thousands of dollars to these bots that have been front running me. Um, yeah, so there's just a lot of cool stuff in there, but maybe the NFT dashboards are a good place to start for people who haven't tried it before. So what are some other, you, you gave the example earlier on with like the uh, fund that essentially saved a ton of money by acquiring that asset faster than, than they w- would have originally. So what are some other cool examples where you've heard of like users either being able to, you know, acquire something in a, in a more cost-efficient manner or just like finding some really great source of alpha from, from using Nonsen? Like, like t- t- take me through some, some other examples that, that you found funny or exciting or cool. Probably the first that comes to mind is a Twitter account called MEV Collector. Um, so literally their handle is at MEV Collector. 
And their pinned uh, tweet is actually a thread where they talk about how they have turned 11 Ether to 862 Ether in 33 days flipping NFTs. And literally the first thing they say is that they use Nonsense to do it. That's the main tool. So I think that's a good example, right? Like, and if, if I'm looking, if I'm looking up, like, uh, I'm actually just checking the prices here. Like Eleven ether, right? That's around fifty thousand dollars, right? And they turned that to eight hundred and sixty-two, which I think right now is around three point eight million dollars, right? <laughs> that's that's pretty insane. Um, and this is. As far as I know, I mean, this is like an anonymous account, but as far as I know, this is not, this is not a fund or sort of a, you know, it's not a massive fund. It's someone who took $50,000 and turned it into $3.8 million, literally flipping NFTs, and their main tool was Nonsense, and they actually detail in that thread how they did it. I, I wouldn't claim that you can sort of just go ahead and replicate their exact strategies and tactics now, because of course many people have seen that thread and they have understood that you can do similar things. But the point is that this is a completely different use case than the fund that was scooping up tokens, right? So it just goes to show that our platform is actually really universal and you can use it for different strategies and and you can discover alpha in different ways and you can act on it and, and you know, grow your crypto portfolio. But that's probably the first one that comes to mind, like turning 11 Ether into 862 ether in 33 days flipping nfts yeah that that is insane that, that that is so cool all right so so what are what are some possible products that you want to build in the future i, I mean you probably can't talk about everything but the stuff that you can talk about uh because i feel like you have this incredible base and, and already an amazing product but like having all this great data and being able to con- contextualize it is just you, you you can go in like almost 10 different directions right so moving forward, what are you thinking that you want to build or add that will just make nonsense go go to you know to, to to like basically up to level ten? Yeah. So I think another uh, lesson learned from that startup in Hong Kong is that the number one challenge for any crypto entrepreneur is focus. So the hard thing, as you point out, is not to figure out what to do, but what not to do. And so. Um, there are so many directions we can we can go in, and I would answer this kind of at a conceptual level, and I would compare Nansen to Tesla, for example. So, what's you know what's been Tesla's master plan? It's pretty uh, simple if you look at it. You know they started out building the Roadster, which I would characterize as a product for rich enthusiasts. But that was never the end goal, right? The idea was to uh, create a car that, you know, did well in, in, in the sense that, you know, you ma- they made money off of it. They were able to build up a fan base uh, initially. But over time, you could sort of take the money you earned from the Roadster, inv- reinvest it into the company, get, you know, more people on board, bigger factories, you know, improve your manufacturing lines. And then you create another car, which maybe is a little bit cheaper, but you produce more of them. And so overall, you're making more money in gross terms. Um, and you can take that money and reinvest it into the company, build bigger factories, more factories, you know, better manufacturing lines, and so on. 
And I think what we're doing is quite similar. Many people complain that Nansen is not free or like it's too expensive. And it's kind of funny because many of the funds say the opposite. Like it should be way more expensive to perhaps make it less accessible because there's so much alpha in the product. But I do think that Nansen is on this trajectory where we've started with the enthusiasts, but we are here to help make the future of finance become a reality. And if we want blockchains to overtake traditional finance and basically replace the whole financial infrastructure, you need everyone on board. That includes retail investors, right? The, the smaller investors, but it also includes institutions who largely, like now they're getting into crypto. Uh, in, in many cases, they're getting more curious, but institutions need to have information before they start uh, participating in the crypto market. So a product like Nansen is kind of a no-brainer for um, an institution coming from traditional finance and wanting to dabble in the crypto markets with understanding DeFi, perhaps even understanding NFTs. So I would say that, you know, we are on that path to sort of make, uh, become a gateway into the crypto world and perhaps Controversially, at least when you speak to VC uh, funds, you kind of have to choose one path. Like, do you want to go after consumer or do you want to go B2B, like focusing on enterprises and, and institutions? I think that the number one, the category leader of information in crypto has to do both. You have to go after both the institutions and also the retail market. And the reason for that is that crypto is actually a sort of retail first market. Like most of the magic happened, most of the, um, the people at the frontier are normal people. They're like, they're individual investors mostly. You know, the people who are first jumping into a yield farm and NFT collection, they are retail investors. And so if you don't cater to that market, you're, you can't be at the frontier. You need to have a feedback loop with those customers. So that's, that's why you need to focus on like the normal you know, people like you and me, uh, individual investors in the crypto space. But if you discard the institutional segment, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of revenues that you're kind of leaving on the table if you don't cater to that market. So someone else then will go and try to cater to the institutions, right? And so we want to basically serve both of them, and we have really good traction on the individ individual investor side, the retail investors, which, by the way, is kind of a weird term because. Many of these so-called retail investors manage, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So it's kind of an, an unusual segment, the crypto whales and so on. But going forward, we do want to build a stronger institutional offering. So we don't really, we haven't had like an API, for example. Like there should be a way to programmatically access at least parts of the data that we have. And so that's a natural next product that we have already actually uh, sold a few uh, licenses for and we're getting more customers to, to use it. But like API access, programmatic data access uh, is very important. Also direct querying access on the data in different ways. That's a huge thing for us. Another thing um, that is relevant both to institutions and the individual investors is that the world is clearly uh, a multi-chain world now. And it wasn't really so that much it wasn't that clear two years ago or three years ago it seemed like it would be kind of bitcoin and ethereum and all these other contenders were sort of like ethereum killers which was a bit of a meme but now you actually see um 
you know, more more or less, you can you know argue about how how much of this um, usage is organic. But you see real human beings like using these other chains like Avalanche, Solana, Terra, um, Phantom, Polygon, you know, Ronin. Like all, all these different chains are there. And for us as like a gateway to crypto and as like a almost like a front end or interface to crypto, it's very important that we support these different chains because you know, if some large portion of the market is using chain X and we don't have support for it, then of course, again, we're kind of leaving revenues and, and, and customer segments on the table. So adding like more multi-chain support and even like cross-chain um, analytics, I think that's, that's another big area for us. Then maybe the final thing I would mention is that we do want Nansen to become more Web3 native. So you know, the cool thing about crypto and blockchains is that you can you can actually hook into all these great open source protocols. And if you want to make transactions, if you want to uh, move funds between different chains and so on, why shouldn't you be able to do that through an interface like Nansen, right? You should, you should, that just seems like a no-brainer to me that, um, you know, if you're already using our uh, interface to understand what's going on in the market and you're looking at money flowing from here to there, having sort of convenience to just move funds as well or make, make transactions through our interface, it seems like a no-brainer for me to do that. But of course, there's a regulatory aspect to that and so on. You need to be careful. So we're not, we're not sort of rushing into it, but I think it makes sense for us to facilitate some of the transactions and interactions that you can make with Web3 and the blockchain world as well. So those are maybe the three things I would highlight, like focusing on institutions in 2022 very heavily, beefing up a lot on the multi-chain part and then uh, engaging more with Web3 functionality. Awesome. All right. So so do you see, is the world of crypto and NFT markets, is that moving towards a world where like quants will dominate just because it is so data rich and because of on-chain analytics, there's a lot of, there's a lot more transparency to what's actually happening compared to, to traditional markets? Or do you think that because these markets are so esoteric and and still, you know, so new that, you know, a lot of retail investors will, will continue to play a major role. Yeah, I like to say that DeFi, you know, has brought the capital and NFTs bring the people. And um, I think that sort of reflects a bit, you know, who the main participants are in these two markets. So DeFi, I think, will be perhaps more dominated by, by whales that whales and like larger funds that kind of understand these very complex financial products. Um, whereas NFTs are, you know, in in essence, more retail friendly assets. Although NFTs are a very broad category, so you can have lots of different. You can have like gaming NFTs, but you can also have probably some kind of licensing and royalties NFTs, which might be more interesting to say institutional investors. So there's the space of NFTs is just massive. Um, but I, I do think to answer your question a bit more directly, I do think that. Um, funds have been quite slow to get into nfts because they're actually a really different thing when it comes to like uh, everything from custody to the trading operations and the, the sort of code you might have written to aggregate data on like order books and so on they're not you can't reuse them for nfts because you know every nft is a unique asset right by definition so you need to um 
you need to look at the sort of bids and so on for those unique assets and you need to understand the pricing of each unique asset. So you can you can sort of be really plugged in on penguins or, you know, like pudgy penguins or um, crypto punks or bored apes, but you still have to make a decision on what the price should be for each individual item in the, each of those collections. And that's not trivial. And I think that it's almost more similar to something like real estate, where you can look at, hey, what about real estate in like San Francisco or real estate in New York or in Singapore? You know, but at the end of the day, you need to look at the specific uh, piece of real estate you're buying, right? So you need to understand both kind of the macro and also the, the micro when it comes to uh, pricing these assets. So, so I think there are so many new challenges that funds, frankly, are scrambling to try to get uh, on top of. Uh, because, you know, if you're a fund, you can't just <laughs> take this kind of retail mindset of, of aping into different collections because you kind of like the aesthetics or because you want to make a um, punt on it, right? You have to um, be more sophisticated with regards to justifying the investment thesis and so on. And so um, that's why I think it's taken a longer time for funds to get into NFTs. But they're definitely getting into NFTs. Like I speak with uh, you know, the top crypto funds in the world and they have people who are actively focusing on uh, getting deeper into the NFT space. Amazing. Awesome. Well, Alex, I know you have to pop off here soon, so let's jump into the closing questions. Sure. Let's do it. All right. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Well, it would have to be my profile pic on Twitter, which is a pudgy penguin. It's uh, a Viking pangu with a kimono. So that would have to be my favorite NFT. I love it. Would you, would you ever sell that or would it have to be something absurd, some price, some, you know, insanely high price? I mean... Everything has a price, but probably I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell it. No. Oh, very cool. Very cool. All right. What is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or NFTs? Oh, that's a tricky one. My most controversial thought. Well, I mean, I like to say that NFTs are probably underrated. I, I, we hear a lot that NFTs are a bubble. NFTs are overrated. They're crazy, but I think they're massively underrated. Like in a longer term perspective, people. Don't, I don't think people have understood like how big this asset class could be. And uh, even within the crypto space, you have like crypto OGs who, you know, they're, they're like bearish on NFTs, so they think it's silly. But I, I really think that NFTs could potentially become like the biggest asset class within crypto. And it's clearly attracting a lot of new money into the space. So I think NFTs being underrated might be one of my more controversial opinions. Love it. All right, if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto slash NFT e ecosystem, what would it be? Certainly to make the user experience better for newcomers. So I have friends who, you know, finally are taking a plunge into crypto, actually many of them because of NFTs, but the onboarding process is just terrible. So you have to choose between going through mega clunky processes where you lose out a lot of money on transaction fees uh, or to onboard more directly, but then pay even more on transaction fees. So I think, you know, if I could snap my finger, it would certainly need to be the onboarding process smoother for newcomers. Awesome. All right. Who is someone that you look up to and why? Hmm. Um, I guess there are many people. 
to look up to in this space, which is which is great. There are a lot of role models. Uh, maybe another like slightly controversial one, but I I think uh, I actually think CZ from Binance um, has been has had an unbelievable success with Binance and has done a lot for the crypto space. And um, you know maybe for various various different reasons he like doesn't get uh, as much love uh, as he did in the beginning. But I think he's been clearly as an entrepreneur he's amazingly successful. And I think he's done a lot for the crypto space. And then you can have different opinions about, um, you know, Binance or you know, uh, many of the things they've done. But I do think CZ as an entrepreneur is is uh, certainly someone I look up to. Love it. All right, last question: Where do you see the NFT ecosystem in three years? Yeah, three years feels like long enough that even if there is kind of an NFT bear market, which I don't know if if it will happen or not, uh, you know. You might go through that, and then you know we might be back on the next cycle in three years. So I think <clears throat> I, I I definitely think that gaming is one of the short term, short to mid term applications for NFTs. So in three years, I would expect that several you know um, leading game studios and game developers have actually started using NFTs in their games. Um, maybe also. On the flip side, uh, some of the more crypto-native gaming studios will become a leading uh, gaming studio. So there's kind of two ways to arrive at one of the two, one of the main um, game studios being NFT native. So I think blockchain-powered gaming is, you know, one of the, those big areas. Then I would hope to see a bit more of the, say, like music. Right, being being more uh, present in the NFT world, where you can trade, uh, maybe you could own a piece of a song or 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 an album or something like that. Um, but you know, it is harder because you have more middlemen there. You know, you have licensing issues and so on. But in three years, I think that's a long enough time that we could see people actually owning uh, assets from the music world, which I think would be amazing. And then I I would also expect that. Many of the top artists in the world—it could be like you know illustrators, graphic designers, um, fine artists, and so on. Uh, many of them will have created NFTs and successfully so. So I think those are at least three uh, areas where three years from now I would expect to see that um, happen. Love it, love it, Alex. Well, Alex, I, I appreciate you you know jumping on and, and taking the time. This is a blast. I, I really love learning about your background and diving really deep into Nansen. And everything you're doing there is just incredible. If people want to find out more about yourself, find out more about Nansen, where should they go? What should they do? Definitely go to nansen.ai. That's our website. Uh, on Twitter, you can follow me at A Svanevik. That's the letter A and my last name. Uh, you can also follow Nansen underscore AI on Twitter. So those are probably the best ways to go. Awesome. Alex, th- thank you so much for, for coming, on, coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was great talking to you. Have a good one.